Hello, and welcome to the Ideas Sleep Furiously podcast. I'm Matt Archer. This week, I'm speaking with John Jost. John is Professor of Psychology and Politics and co-director of the Centre for Social and Political Behaviour at New York University. His research, which addresses stereotyping, prejudice, political ideology, and system justification theory, has been funded by the National Science Foundation and has appeared in top scientific journals and received national and international media attention. He has published over 200 journal articles and book chapters and four co-edited book volumes, including Social and Psychological Bases of Ideology and System Justification. His two most recent books are A Theory of System Justification, which came out in 2020, and Left and Right, The Psychological Significance of a Political Distinction. If you're a long-time viewer of the channel, then you might have seen two of my previous videos on system justification theory and the just world bias. I'll link those down below. They're a good primer to John's research. In this podcast, we talk about system justification theory, obviously, whether it pathologizes conservatism, which is a critique that John has received most famously from Jordan Peterson. We talk about Jonathan Haidt's work, uh, The Righteous Mind, and John's critique of uh, Haidt's famous book, as well as discussing the psychological asymmetries between conservatism and liberalism. I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, I've followed John's work for many years now, and if you've uh, read anything in political or social psychology, you've almost certainly heard his name and probably read some of his work yourself. Now, do remember, if you are one of these people who prefers listening to watching, then you can get this podcast on all the major podcasting platforms. It's also worth subscribing to my Substack, the link for which is down below. At the moment, to encourage you over there, I'm currently releasing the podcast about a week early. And I'm also writing a few articles each week. So if you want to get hold of all of that, then subscribe to the Substack down below. And without further ado, I give you John Jost. This is a podcast uh, where the, I, th I think like, you know, the tagline is interdisciplinary education is the future. And I've done about 12 podcasts so far. And I thought, you know what, I want to kind of revamp things and kind of start each podcast now by asking the interviewee what they think it means to be truly educated. Mm. That's a that's an interesting question. Um, to be truly educated, I guess. To me, it's 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 less than having a huge stock of knowledge. I would think it's an approach to life that is curious and interested in learning more, recognizing that you'll never learn or understand everything. Um, so that it's it's. It's a search, not a not a blind search, a search that's hopefully cumulative in the sense that you feel that you um, have explored enough of, uh, of science, of social science, of philosophy, of other disciplines to have a good sense of um, at least what you think about the state of the world and then are in a position then to test your hypotheses um, as you as you are exposed to new experiences. Um, so I, I think it's, it's, it's an attitude with the experience of having that attitude, I suppose, built up over years that gives you um, an education. But I guess, and maybe this is why I'm an academic, for me, education is never over, it's never finished, it's yeah. never complete. So I suppose, um, that's, I guess that's for me why it, it needs to be an attitude going forward as well as something that you've already accomplished. So do you, do you think 
being truly educated is is asymptotic. It's like health. You know, you never complete this game, and that's kind of the beauty of it. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in science, I think we're always surprised. Um, uh, even things that I was taught in school thirty or forty years ago, some of them are are no longer uh, considered to be true. Um, others are, and that's good. I guess there's some stability, but there's also a lot of change in this whole uh, process in, in this learning system. So, yeah, I, I I think that's right. I think you never get there. So, can you talk about your own educational journey? up to where you are now as a esteemed professor at NYU? Uh, sure. <laughs> um, that's a grandiose introduction. But, <laughs> but uh, for someone who Look at your H index. more humble, uh, yes, education. I'm a pedagogical artist. Um, I started um, very modestly in Cincinnati, Ohio. I, mean, I was born in Toronto, actually. Speaking of education, my, my father was a graduate student at the University of Toronto when I was born. And we moved to Cincinnati when I was two years old. And so I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, which is you're, you're in the middle of England somewhere. I grew up in the middle of the United States somewhere. And, um, but, but education was important to my, to my parents. They were, they were um, good in school. They had Catholic backgrounds, went to Catholic schools, but they were very good students, um, both of them. And education was something that they valued together. And so even though we didn't have a lot of money, they actually put us in my sister and, and, and me in private schools um, mm -hmm. in Cincinnati, because at the time in the 1970s, they, they were worried about the state of the public schools, at least at the elementary school level. So, um, which I know is opposite, the, the terminology public and private may be opposite from what you use in the UK, but, um, but, uh, but so education was a big part of my childhood growing up um, and both my parents, uh, eventually had PhDs, and um, and so it was a big thing. Uh, and then, uh, and were then you I recognized as gifted at, at school? Were you ever put into a gifted stream, or you, were you in top sets streamed? We didn't have that. At least I didn't know that we had that, and my parents didn't know that we had that in Cincinnati in the 1970s. So that didn't come up. But the whole school was a, was a privileged one in. in in various senses, we were, I think, on scholarship, um, but I think that um, that most of the kids there were, were pretty smart. Not all of them, I guess, but a lot of the kids were smart. Um, my my one of my daughters now, one of my children now, is in, in a gifted and talented program, but that didn't really exist back then. Um, anyway, um, yeah, so it was it was a very good school. It was a college preparatory school, is what they called it, and. And so the assumption was most of the kids there were were bound for college one day, and that actually turned out to be right. Um, and did you think of yourself as an academic student, someone that was actually interested? Did you realize that you were clever? Uh, I would not have said I, I thought I was clever. <laughs> um, I would say I was mostly an A student with occasional um, failings and I could, you know, came in second place in the spelling bee and I could do the math things in two minutes and stuff like that. But um, I never had that conception of myself, but I, I, I felt, I mean, since you're asking a lot about education and, and childhood, and I think that's really cool that you're focusing on that. That's not quite what I expected you to be asking me about, but I like it. And it's interesting to me to take, take me back down this, path. Um, but because both of my parents ultimately got their PhDs and became professors, I felt a lot of academic pressure to succeed. And I think that came out in a writing assignment that I had in seventh grade or eighth grade, where we were supposed to write kind of like a novel thing. 
and I wrote about a, a llama um, named Johannes, just German for John, big stretch there. And um, he was under a lot of pressure to succeed academically from his parents, this llama. And um, I, I tried to make it funny, but also the the strain that he that this poor llama was under was intense to succeed in college and graduate school. So there's even things in there about like where will you, how will you get into a good graduate school if you behave like this kind of thing. And that's you know I was in seventh grade, so I already knew that I had to go to graduate school, let alone college. So <laughs> yes, I would say I would say I was raised in a very educationally intense high expectations. For better or worse, yeah. But my parents were both the first in their families to go to college, so that's another thing. Is it's not like we come from a long line of highly educated people either. Um, basically, Catholic working class, mm -hmm. uh, you know, immigrants a few generations back for the most part, and uh, and so they they but but their families valued education, and that was the main thing. And then my parents were the kind of the first ones in their family to really have all the opportunities and to take advantage of those opportunities. So you you uh, graduate from this privileged academic private school, and then where do you go? Well, not exactly. It took a, it took a, there was a you know, to use a baseball metaphor. I don't know the cricket metaphors, but a baseball metaphor. There was a curveball there, which was my family moved away to Washington D.C. just for one year, and I switched schools there, and then came back to Cincinnati after a short period and ended up. Uh, going to a public school, choosing to go to a large um, city public school, um, in part because I had friends there, and in part because their soccer team was much better, and I was I wanted to be a competitive soccer player, and so I I, I actually persuaded my parents to let me go to this uh, public school. Now it it is a good public school even to this day. It's considered um, you know one of the best public schools in the state of Ohio. Um, it's called Walnut Hills High School. It was an excellent school and I, I made a lot of friends and I did get to play on the soccer team and we did do very well in, in, in soccer competitions those two years that I was there. Um, and it was also um, a, a much more diverse school, much larger and much more diverse, you know, um, um, a lot more African-American students, other minority students there. And that was a good experience for me and it was very different. You know, I essentially went from um, private, mostly white, small classes, 40 or 50 kids in a year to my graduating classes at Walnut Hills was 375 wow. uh, kids. And it was, it was very diverse. Um, but again, most of the, most of the students there went to college just because it was a really great school. And I, I was able to take these uh, classes. I don't know if you have something equivalent in the UK, but advanced placement classes, mm -hmm. AP classes that gives you college credit if you'd score well on an exam uh, after taking classes in high school. And so I en actually ended up being able to graduate from Duke University in three years because of that. So not only did that public school, you know, give me a good education in high school, it saved me a year of college tuition for my parents too. Yeah, no small thing in America. So Indeed. your undergrad that was in, I forget the Wikipedia you now. It, it, no, it's okay. Uh, I studied psychology and, and human development uh, at Duke University um, in, yeah, which is in Durham, North Carolina. Uh, has a great basketball team that's still in the, in the hunt for the Sweet 16 uh, right now. <laughs> so, so shout out to the Blue Devils. <laughs> <laughs> so what's their nickname? Go? Blue Devils. Blue Devils. Okay. Blue Devils, so Blue yes. Devils. <laughs> kind of satanic, doesn't it? <laughs> now that you think about it. Yeah, it's, it's a bit odd. Um, yes. <laughs> okay. So, 
Okay, so you do your undergrad. Uh, uh, at this stage, when you're studying psychology and human development, can you, now, now looking back, can you um, identify anything that led you to where you are now in terms of you know, your work on system justification, justification theory and your interest in political ideologies? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's right. What do they say? The child is the father of the man or something? Uh, for sure. Um, there's a, an anecdote that I wrote about in the preface, I think, to my book on system justification, uh, where I talk about when I was a kid, my favorite thing to do was to play cowboys and Indians. And, and so I, you know, almost all my birthday parties when I was a young child were, were cowboy themed, you know, things I had, I had uh, the whole deal, I had cowboy hat and the holster and the cap guns and the badge and all this kind of stuff. Um, and um, that was like my favorite thing, cowboys and Indians. And one day my parents uh, sat me down at the dinner table, which is something they never did for like a serious conversation. One evening, uh, I think after dinner, um, my parents sat me down and they said, well, you know, John, there's something we have to tell you. We know you love cowboys and playing cowboys and Indians and so on, but, but the cowboys really weren't the good guys <laughs> in history. Um, and they, you know, it felt to me like they were sharing this kind of deep, important moral lesson with me. And it was a hard, it was a little bit hard to take at, at first, but I got it and I appreciated they were treating me like what I thought was like an adult. And so I kind of absorbed this lesson and I realized, um, yeah, now that you mention it, they are killing an awful lot of people with non-white skin in, in these movies that I love and all this. And so it, something clicked uh, there. Um, and, um, and it was consistent with other things that I, I, I'd gotten from my childhood. My, my grandfather was a civil rights activist. Um, he, um, he started as a member of the Catholic workers movement to try to help the poor. Uh, he knew uh, Dorothy Day and, and Peter mm -hmm. Moran and the leaders of that movement. Oh. And then in the 1960s, he, he, he was white, but he was a, a pro-black civil rights leader or activist in Rochester, New York, in the, even the early 60s, maybe even before that. And uh, my father marched with Martin Luther King in 1963 in Washington, D.C., before I was born. And my parents met at a civil rights meeting. So all these things kind of came together in a way for me. Um, but it wasn't really until I was in graduate school and I came across a passage from James Baldwin where he talks about um, rooting for, for Gary Cooper uh, and the Cowboys to kill the Indians before you realize, you know, that the Indians are you. Um, and, and it, you know, in, in some sense, you know, I'm not, the Indians are not really me in a, in a literal sense, but in a, in a sense of identification or something, I, I feel like it's always been important to me and to my mm -hmm. family to kind of see things from the perspective of the underdog and to see how all the ideas in, in our culture seem to favor the overdog, not the underdog. So you, perhaps now is a good time to give people um, a brief overview of system justification theory. And perhaps you could link it to your, I guess, I don't know if you consider it your seminal 2003 article. Um, was it political conservatism has motivated social cognition? Um, sure, sure. I mean, for me, it begins a little, things begin a little bit earlier in the 1990s. Um, I had a, a paper in 1994, which was kind of the first major contribution I tried to offer social science uh, in collaboration with Mazarin Benacci. Uh, when I was a graduate student at Yale, we wrote a paper 
uh, called The Role of Stereotyping in the Production of False Consciousness and, and System Justification. And that's where we started down this idea of, of system justification uh, as a tendency that people have, that is to, to defend, bolster, and justify aspects of the societal status quo. So you kind of take for granted a lot of things about your society and you internalize them. Um, and, and those things seem natural. And when things seem natural and, and sometimes they seem inevitable, you tend to legitimize them on a very basic psychological level. It seems legitimate. And anything that's different from that seems illegitimate. And so what are the consequences of that for our, our beliefs about groups, which are stereotypes, our beliefs about society, which is ideology, uh, and so on. And so I began to kind of really explore that and to feel that um, the social psychologists had done a really good job of understanding why people engage in self-enhancement biases. You know, um, most people think that, you know, you're in a car, so most people think that they're the better drivers than the average driver. And most people think that they're more fair than the average person and that they're better at this, that, and the other thing. Um, and so we know that uh, from social psychology that, that people see the world in a way that's slightly tilted in their own favor. And we know from social identity theory that people also come to see the world in ways that are slightly tilted in favor of their group memberships. So I think, you know, Duke is better than North Carolina, University of North Carolina, or NYU is better than Columbia or whatever it is. Um, we and, and you you think this, there's a deep epistemic need for this, right? So in order to be able to live with yourself, you need to be able to put that positive spin on your existence. Would that be fair? Yes, I think that's right. I think that's right. But but um, that's exactly right. But even beyond those two things, the self-enhancement, the group enhancement, there is a system enhancement thing, which, yes, is also part of the foundation for giving meaning to your life, to make it, making it, make, giving you the impression that, um, that there's something very solid and important and meaningful that, that that serves what I, yes, what I call epistemic, existential, and relational needs. The epistemic needs are needs for, for certainty, um, um, predictability, control, perhaps, uh, existential needs for safety, security, uh, and so on, and relational needs for uh, affiliation, sense of social belongingness. Um, you don't want to feel alienated from your society. You want to feel a part of it. And, and, and so for all these reasons, I think there are psychological um, needs, dispositions, whatever you want to say, tendencies to buy into the legitimacy of the way things are. And that includes um, the status quo, even if the status quo uh, is not especially great for you, even if, if you're, you're underemployed or unemployed, even if you're a member of a disadvantaged group in that society, it's really hard, I think, to question the fundamental legitimacy of the societies in which we're born into and on which we depend for our livelihoods. So perhaps it's worth giving people some examples here. Um, sure. I made these two videos on system justification theory and like just world fallacy and, and all of this stuff. Um, oh, thank and, you. Yeah, perhaps yes, you could I watch those. Excellent. Yeah. Those are excellent yeah. videos. Thank you. Well, I yeah, I, I really enjoyed making them, uh, especially because it was just after there was this brutal murder of this young woman called uh, Sarah Everard in the UK who was walking home in London. Um, alone at night and she was kidnapped by a um a police officer and she was uh, raped and killed um so i put i titled the second video i dedicated it to her um just because yeah i thought i thought that it 
the things like well, I, I, can, I can give one example. Perhaps you can riff off of this. You know, domestic abuse, right? Where you're trapped. You know, we, we all have, well, obviously most people have heard of Stockholm syndrome, and you kind of justify the situation that you're in. You think how could how could anyone justify this? And of course, you just you there are so many things going on there, so many epistemic. Um, insecurities and this need this worry that you know, I can't I can't leave him or you know what am I going to do and you just you end up being able to justify obviously you know the you know, World War Two and the the Nazis is another go-to example of how people end up justifying the most horrific things um, but yeah I think I think it's perhaps worth giving people um, a a quick um, tour of some really important examples where system justification plays out yeah, you're right. Those are all powerful examples, um, and ones that I at least touch on in the in the theory of system justification book. Um, that's absolutely right. There were there were social psychologists who were involved in World War II, um, and who studied concentration camp survivors, uh, for instance, and and found that they were so dependent on their captors that in some ways they came to. Um, identify with them, they came to idealize them in certain respects, they came to have, in some cases, even positive feelings towards them. Um, it's, it's very difficult when you're so, you know, not make peace with it in some ways. And, and I think the family is a social system. Um, and so romantic relationships, relationships between parents and children, these are also small uh, social systems, they're just smaller social systems. And um, what that means is every actor in that system is affecting in some ways the psychology of every other member of that system. Uh, and so I think it does this way of thinking. And I, I also was um, inspired by research on why uh, it's so difficult, for instance, for, for women who are in abusive relationships to get out of those relationships uh, and how they become psychologically dependent upon their abusers in, in so, some ways. And I saw parallels between that and between what, um, what um, you know, earlier generations of social psychologists had written about the experiences of concentration camp survivors, uh, Bruno Bettelheim being one of them. Um, and so to me, I was looking for a, a common denominator in all these different examples. Um, and, and, and it seemed to me that it could be parsimoniously explained um, by positing that, that it's just incredibly psychologically terrifying to not feel that um, everything on which you depend is in some sense solid and stable and legitimate um, and, and something that gives your life meaning. Uh, and so, you know, think about it a different way. What, what would it be like to, today, let's say, to be living in a society that you looked at and you just see it as just ruthlessly exploitative, awful, unjust in, in every way. Um, most people don't see their own societies that way. A few people probably do. And it must be terrifying for the people who do, yeah. right? They, they have to go through life feeling completely unsafe, thinking that a police officer could, could for instance, um, abduct them and rape them and kill them if they wanted. Um, they, you know, that maybe the teachers and the school system might might also harm them or not have their best interests at, at heart. They they might you know think that their parents are taking advantage of them and and in various ways. They might think you know there's there's no there's no psychological safety in any way, yeah. right? There's yeah. no there's no certainty. You don't know what's going to happen to you tomorrow. 
let alone the day after that in a situation like this. And you, you feel disconnected. You can't build strong relationships with people in your family or people in your school or people in your society. Um, you're on your own. Um, it's, it's extremely alienating. So I think in a way, thinking about what it would really be like to call into question you know, everything about the legitimacy of mm -hmm. the social systems on which we depend and how terrifying that would be. That, to me, captures the psychology of, of system justification and why we engage in it. So you've got people on the extreme left, well, they're called the extreme left, who will say, look, society, you know, American society, Western society, it's inherently racist, right? Uh, and they'll they'll see racism where there aren't, where there isn't any. And they'll you know, they talk about things like microaggressions and everything. There's like, a, obviously, Jonathan Haidt has written about this with Greg Lukianoff, um, about you know, uh, it, it, this, this mindset kind of mirroring um, the opposite of... Uh, what you're trained to do in cognitive behavioral therapy, right? So you 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 catastrophize everything, and then I could I, it's something they don't talk about, but it just, it just occurred to me. There's kind of like a horseshoe here where people on the extreme right will also see society as you know, uh, let, let's just take uh, say white nationalists right, as impure as they, they, I mean you obviously can't imagine if you watch. Um, I forget the name of the film now. There's a brilliant Dear Khan uh, is the documentary uh, filmmaker, and I think it's called White white right or white fight anyway it's about neo-nazis she goes uh, and interviews them she was there at charlottesville um and obviously if you see the world through this lens this prism you're going to be pretty miserable so would you say that when you go to those extremes whether it's you know the you know, the fascist or the person that sees racism everywhere that's almost synonymous with mental illness and system justification theory this kind of cognitive safe ground is what it is to be kind of like mentally well adjusted is to actually kind of uh yeah justify and um uh, yeah explain away injustice in order to be able to live with yourself and your society you said a lot there. Uh, I agree with some of it, and I don't agree with some of it. Um, uh, I agree that I agree with some of what you arrived at at the end, which is that um, that there is a sense in which rationalization is a coping mechanism that can be adaptive under certain circumstances. Um, you know, we we hear it with the Lord's Prayer. You know, have the wisdom to uh, what is it to to um, uh, improve the things you can and, and uh, accept the things you can't change uh, and the wisdom to know the difference. I think what's missing from what you just said is the wisdom to know the difference. Um, um, that's why I, I think Jonathan Haidt is wrong, um, that, that first of all, he's wrong that microaggressions don't exist. Um, second of all, he's wrong that people who are really concerned about racism or sexism are the same in any psychological or political sense as neo-Nazis, I, I think that's ludicrous. It's a silly idea. Um, and so in general, I'm not a fan of the horseshoe theory. And even if I was a fan of the horseshoe theory, I don't think that the people who are concerned about microaggressions are, for instance, communists, extremists, or something like that either. So there's just a whole lot that's wrong about that analysis, which I'm sorry to say, I, I find a whole lot wrong everything Jonathan Haidt really digs into and analyzes. Um, well, I'm sure I, we'll I come on to Haidt. He, he has a few, he has a few decent ideas and then a whole lot of um, uh, going well beyond that. Um, uh, and Jordan Peterson, I think, is a manifestation of that way of thinking and it's an absolute disaster for social science. Um, 
So, so, so anyway, maybe maybe um, I wasn't clear that we're coming sorry. off. We're covering a lot of ground already. Yes, go ahead. It, it, is is is? I, so I think because I'm not sure those are heights ideas. I think I was just like you know, spinning a thread there. So no, Hyde has written papers saying that that, that um, saying exactly that, saying that um, microaggressions essentially don't exist, don't and exist, that okay. liberals who worry about them are make, making a big deal out of out of nothing. So, but I think he's wrong. Um, I I think he is. Um, he is a system system justifier in in the good ways and the bad ways, and I think it's I think we can understand psychologically why people make peace with things they can't change. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. but that but when we apply it to social justice and the things that we can change, like racism, then we're we're not having the wisdom to know the difference, you know. And I think that's Height's problem there. He he takes uh, a germ of a decent idea and runs with it way too far and that's just wrong um we can change we've changed a lot about racism in our country in the last 50 or 60 years and i'm i'm proud to say that my grandfather was one of the people responsible for that and um we, we need to keep changing it and that's not the same as complaining about you know every little thing all the time either i i think that there are people who can speak intelligently about microaggressions um and i i find what they have to say very convincing and very useful. I've just been reading, in fact, Franz Fanon um, wrote a book many years ago in the 1950s called Black Skin, White Masks. And he, he describes all kinds of racial microaggressions that he experienced in the 1950s that are 100% are plausible and 100% um, his analysis is right on of how he was a, a person with a medical degree uh, who, because he was had black skin, was you know, was mm. was spoken to condescendingly by many professionals, including fellow doctors and, and so on. Do we think that that's not something that happens? Um, I, I think you'd have to have your head in the sand to think that that's not something that happens. Um, so it you clearly happens. I, I just no, want sure, to cla just clarify. Yeah, so, I, so yeah. I, I, I'm definitely not saying that um, you know, microaggressions don't exist. I'm, yeah, I'm sure, um, you know, as you say, Fanon would give a, a litany of them. But um, I, 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 yes. I guess I was trying to make more of like a hypothetical point. Sure. More of like a hypothetical point of like, so say you, you take this uh, person who does see racism where there just there, there isn't any, right? And the you, the person. Where, where, on, where would this, let me stop you there. Where would that be? Where would there be no racism? In, um, so in, say, even say, in the 21st century. <laughs> so say someone who um, would refuse to uh, grant that there's been substantial progress in my country and your country, right? And they're just kind of like intransigent in 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 that conversation. And likewise, someone on like the extreme side of things who just says like we need like we need a racially pure society. Uh, th these two people are um, the polar opposite of the system justifier, right? Would you is that is that fair to say? So they're kind of, they're both deluded, so, aren't so they? There, there's a point there that you're making that's right, I think, which is that you can get so far on the left or so far on the right that you are, in fact, um, uh, rejecting some parts of, some major parts, perhaps, of, of society as it is, of the social system. Yeah. And that's part of what makes someone an extremist, is they really want right. to change a lot of things. But part of the problem is there's a lot of social systems uh, and, and people justify different social systems. And so when the neo-Nazi is justifying white supremacy, there is a long history, a long tradition, you might say, a long status quo 
of white supremacy that they're absolutely defending and justifying. And what they're resisting are changes to that long history, right? Um, yeah. Now, it may look like they're challenging the system, that especially when President uh, Barack Obama is leading that system or leading that government, for sure. They're not system justifiers about you know, the US government you know, from you know, 2008 to 2016, but they uh, are certainly system justifiers uh, in, in the racial sense, for instance. So it's like domain right? specific. Perhaps, yes, yes. And uh, whereas people on the, first of all, people who are worried about microaggressions are, are not uh, terribly system justifying. They're not extremists. Um, what they're trying to do is make the current social arrangements uh, a little bit better and more just for everyone involved. They're not trying to fundamentally upend the way we do everything in business or school or anything like that. Um, but there are people, of course, communists and anarchists who are extremists of the left who want to overthrow the system or something. And those people, uh, and they want to they want to overthrow, you know, the capitalist system, for instance, uh, right? So that is a very that would be a very fundamental anti economic system. Um, um, perspective for sure. So can you talk about the asymmetry then between conservatism and liberalism and how you came on to this? Um, and again, that, that very important article which has been referenced you know, a million times um, in 2003. Thank you. Uh, not quite a million, but, but <laughs> a lot. <laughs> I think more than, more than once a day. Um, <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, yes, I can. Uh, so so uh, almost 10 years or so after we started with the system justification idea, which was really not an idea about individual or group differences and how much people justify the system, but more like a kind of general um, pervasive tendency that, that, you know, pointing out that in, in different ways, sort of all of us are accepting and legit legitimizing uh, at least parts of the social systems on which we depend, you know, at some point, um, I wanted to, to focus on, um, on differences between individuals and, individuals and groups in terms of how enthusiastically they are supporting and defending uh, versus questioning or challenging the status quo. And that's where you get to conservatism, which is kind of the, you know, the system justifying ideology uh, par excellence, really. Um, and, and that's different, as you say, than, than a far-right revolutionary Nazism or something like that. Although, as I pointed out, part of what motivates the far-right is a desire to return to an earlier idealized past that, that, uh, that in their minds, um, enshrines the legitimacy of something like white supremacy, right? So, um, so, uh, so it's, so, but, but when, if, for the most part, at least certainly in the United States until at least very recently, conservatism meant a much more middle of the road defense of the status quo uh, and an acceptance, uh, as Edmund Burke put it, of gradual social change. So an opposition to radical change, but a, an ex a, even a, um, a reluctant acceptance of gradual change in society um, was part of, of conservatism. So let's, let's just slow down the wheels of change uh, and the, which are usually, not always, but usually happening in the egalitarian direction, more rights for women, more rights uh, for people of color, more rights for poor people, more rights for children, more rights for sexual minorities, etc. This is sort of how um, Western society has been changing 
uh, over, we're talking a thousand, two thousand years, something like that, maybe longer. And so you've always got the liberals of society or, or the, the, the central, you know, let's say center leftists pushing for more equality in all these spheres of society, political, economic, social. And you've got the conservative side sort of putting on the brakes, slow it down, you know, let's not, let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater and so on. And so you have this tension. And, and I think there have been times in history when that tension uh, in, in liberal democracies has worked okay, maybe not um, allowing for um, as much social justice as many of us would like on the left, but, but also preserving some stability for society so that, so that we're able to build things incrementally across generations. Um, um, you know, I, I know what I prefer and other people prefer more stability, you know, and, and less uh, equality. I prefer a little more equality and less stability, but I understand when we're in that, in that range, how both um, elements can foster a, a, a productive, reasonable, stable, and ultimately more just society. Um, but obviously things are getting a little wacky, I think, um, in, in American politics and maybe in other countries, certainly in, in some other countries, I think, where what passes for conservatism is becoming more extreme um, and, and maybe the frustrations of the people on the center left um, who find it unable to change really important things about society that they think have to be changed, such as police brutality or, or problems with, with anthropogenic climate change uh, and so on. And the frustration is, is clearly building um, and gridlock on, on major issues um, and pushback and, and backlash against things. And so I, I, I definitely feel that um, you know, I know there are political scientists who claim that this is not uh, really happening. It only appears to be happening. But, but um, you know, as a, a participant member of American society, I feel that polarization has been increasing. Conflict has been increasing along ideological lines. And there's, there's frustration and anger building on both sides. And I feel like our democracy is, is not in a good place. Uh, Did you read Ezra Klein's book? Yes, I spoke to Ezra Klein for about an hour and a half on the telephone uh, before he wrote that book. Um, so he he was um, an excellent um, thinker about all of these issues and, and asked me uh, all the great questions as you're asking me right now too, including some of the same questions, I think, or some of the same themes. Um, and I had a, a great phone conversation with him for about an hour and a half before he, um, he wrote that book. And so, um, uh, I, I, yeah, so I, I feel like I agree with a lot of the things in his analysis, ultimately. I think we should uh, kind of put a, 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 a checkpoint in here and just highlight that we're talking, obviously, about um, political ideology. And obviously, you, you've kind of made that um, se seamless connection to the real world. But there is a very important um, set of points to distinguish, which is you can be psychologically conservative and politically an anarchist. I mean, I, I think I've definitely got psychologically conservative tendencies. If you ask me my politics, I would say they're quite anarchistic. You know? um, so there, there is, it's not like there's a correlation of one here. and like one, It's not causal, you know, one determines the other. There's a difference between personality and political ideology. Um, I think uh, John Hibbing and uh, others have done you know, good work trying to separate out these, these constructs. So maybe you want to uh, you know, uh, talk about that a little and then how we actually 
what do you think we still see these um what would you say these psychological asymmetries on the conservative side of things uh in terms of that that epistemic need uh for security uh, etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah good a lot there too um Yes, there, there is a distinction to be made between psychological conservatism and, and political conservatism for, for, uh, for sure, uh, as well as a, a connection between them. Um, I find it useful to think in terms of um, Max Weber's concept of elective affinities, just sort of a mutual attraction between people and ideas. Um, and so I think to, for me, what that means, among other things, is that um, people won't find, quote unquote, find the right belief system, the right ideology for them, unless they're exposed to a pretty big menu of options. And then they, they find the one that, that suits them. Uh, and then once they're in it, they're drawn to it and it's drawn to them, um, there are reciprocal influences. So I think that when people, especially people who really care a lot about politics or religion or, or other kinds of ideologies, um, maybe, maybe the belief system in, in science even, uh, once they devote in some sense their lives to that, it changes also their psychological characteristics, even their personality. So some people have this idea that personality is kind of fixed and innate and it doesn't change throughout the lifespan. That's not really my view. I have a much more Gordon Allport kind of understanding of, of personality, which is kind of the, the psychological structuring of goals, beliefs, values, attitudes, experiences, etc. So Yes, there might be uh, some genetic aspects to temperament, which play out in some ways in one's life over time in certain experiences. And, you know, certainly I, there's nature and there's nurture, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't confuse personality or the psychological basis or aspects of, of left-right ideology with something like genetics. Um, I, I think that there could be heritable components of psychological characteristics that make people more likely to go far left, center left, center right, or far right, or middle of the road. Um, um, uh, if they're exposed to that, if they're, and you, you mentioned education is a big part of that, right? So, um, so some people perhaps uh, are, are just simply absorb the ideologies of their, their parents or their neighborhood, and they never really question that, and they never really get exposed to something else that might fit their psychology better. Um, whereas others might have more of an opportunity, at least in a democracy, certainly not in a totalitarian society, but in a democracy to find something, some political subculture that really resonates with them. And, and if it really draws them in, they get drawn more into it and that changes their psychology uh, and so on. So, um, so yes, on psychological conservatism and political conservatism being, being different but correlated, um, um, and, and the correlation could be stronger or weaker um, as a function of many things, including, including how good of a menu you have in your society for democracy um, and, and your education levels and how much effort, and your, how, how much you're willing to spend in, or, in order to find out more about politics, for instance, if you can think of that as a resource, a cognitive resource, and, a, and, and it takes time and so on. Um, now, getting back to you, uh, an allegedly psychological conservative who has anarchist inclinations, I'd, I'd like, I'd have to know more about what you mean by that. In what ways are you psychologically conservative? In what ways are you not? And in what ways are you an anarchist? And in what ways are you not? Yeah, so um, I think that I have a 
very strong desire for um, kind of epistemic certainty. I don't like change. I like knowing. I like boxing things up in their categories, right? Um, so in my day to day life, you know, I, 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 you know the, these correlations, right? Most 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 uh, conservatives don't find themselves in cities. I, I detest cities, um, and uh, you, know, the, I, you know, obviously the, the, these things are knotty, as, as as you well know. So you know, I I, I, I like listening to art, and uh, uh, sorry, uh, going going to see art and listening to um, I don't know uh, classical music, right? So it's it's personality is obviously, as you say, incredibly complex. But I think at core. Probably, I would tilt uh, slightly more conservative um, in a dire- in in the direction where you would expect that to then perhaps result in me voting more center right. But the anarchistic tendency, I guess, I went to a university where uh, it was the world's uh, anarchist hub. You know, this, there was the, had the center for anarchist studies there, so I just became you know fixated and uh, you know fascinated with um you know, uh, anarchist theory you know I, I'm, I wouldn't necessarily call myself an anarchist but I just uh, yeah there, there was a lot there um so i think maybe that's an example of like emma system goldman? two over are you talking about yeah 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 emma goldman but emma also goldman just kind of a, a basic insight into the 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 uh, what what I, I would i would call it basic you know, the 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 unethical arrangement of the economy where you have as you know as noam chomsky points out well we say we're living a, a, a democracy right but then where do people spend most of their time at work right and you know commuting it's probably maybe 10 hours a day for the average person virtually no say you know some people say that there are you know there's a there's a residue of democracy there you know unions or whatever of course there is but for most people uh they they don't have that level of um you know uh representation and autonomy in their daily life and i i i'm just making a psychological bet here a gambit that if you did have that and you're more work cops i think you'd see a more productive economy so a lot of that stuff just resonates with my scientific understanding of human nature and you know sociology so that would be my my i don't know my yeah the how my politics uh interweaves with my psychology yeah so okay so you so you do consider yourself kind of a left libertarian as opposed to a yeah. right libertarian who's a free market enthusiast yeah. in the yeah. you know Milton Friedman kind yeah. of way whilst yeah. recognizing okay. the GK Chesterton yeah. uh, the conservatism like it's much much harder to build something that works than to knock it down so you know, I would yeah. obviously caution against yeah. uh, just you know revolt for the sake of it yeah it's an interesting situation um <laughs> uh uh are are you are you against the capitalist system would you rather have a different uh economy mm. yeah i'd say i'm not i i'd say i used to be i'm not sure i know enough now i think you know th these things are so amorphous aren't they that i think one has to first start by looking to um real world alternatives when it's that complex and that that you know that irreducible complexity uh so you know the nordic systems are what people point to um now these are ethnically homogenous countries uh, very high tax rates it's not perfect i lived in sweden for a bit but it, it seems to be a fairer society and as you well know and a lot of people like kate uh, was it uh, kate wilkinson or um you know the the spirit level book about how inequality tends to correlate with everything bad you know, you, 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 don't, you want people to smoke less you want people you know, fewer people in jail you probably want to reduce uh, income inequality and obviously thomas piketty has written a lot about this as well so i i would i'm not, I'm not sure i would go that far i think your know, markets can be 
useful um, tools for organizing the distribution of you know, toothbrushes, but do we want to distribute education that way? Probably not. Healthcare, probably not, right? These are case-by-case -case, uh, bases. Yeah. No, I think that's very good. Were, were your parents from the working class? Oh, yeah, yeah. My, my, my first in family to go to university. Um, um, my yeah, mom's a cleaner, dad's a milkman. So um, I guess that, that university education explained um yeah explained a lot especially living with people who are privately educated paying thirty thousand pounds a year to go to school and they we end up in the same place you know it's just it's an interesting kind of sociological phenomenon to unpack that and then look at what they have and what you don't have why that is i think i mean i, I don't know you i met you today but but <laughs> i think putting all these things together it seems like you have um fashioned a good psychological uh reconciliation or compromise of of things um uh, uh, in part because I think there is a way in which um, socialism, especially in places like the UK and Sweden, where you can actually see it, in, in, it's a real entity that's that's concrete, um, as opposed to the US, where it's almost, at least what the way people talk about it as socialism, uh, is is almost like a fantasy or something, not not concrete but abstract. Um, uh, I think that it could, it can offer people who have seen it in action and seen it work uh, to provide a safety net for, for members of the working class, that it actually can satisfy some of those needs for certainty and order and predictability and control that you're talking about. So I, I think in a way that's a bit of a, a paradox about the way um, people talk about what capitalism is and isn't uh, in different countries and so on. Uh, I think the reality for many people is that is that capitalism is a, uh, without a safety net is a very uncertain, scary prospect for people who are not already privileged. Now, for people who are already privileged, it's 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 fun. It's, it's like going to you know going to a casino with a lot of money. Um, but but for people like your parents, maybe who who don't have that. Um, there is something that satisfies all those epistemic, existential, and relational needs in in an actual, you know, social social system that is uh, socialist in certain ways that you that you and they have seen in practice. Um, now, for lots of poor Americans, uh, they've never, even though you know, FDR's economic policies were based on a similar way of thinking about socialism. It never was experienced that way. And so um, here you see lots of members of the working class who are, who are adamantly pro-capitalist, even though they've been suffering uh, immensely from, from the effects of global capitalism, taking factory jobs and lots of other things away from them, um, who, are, who are terrified of this socialist alternative because for them that seems incredibly unsafe. And and um, and it's it's a complete unknown to them, even though in reality it may not be because we do have public schools and, and public hospitals and these things. But yeah. um, but the way that the rhetoric at least has played out, um, I think it, it socialism can mean very different things in the U.S. versus Europe right now, uh, and and that has implications for whether people do or don't see it as um, consistent with their psychology. Um, now, I, I'm going to bet you're not going to turn into um, uh, an anarchist activist for the next 20 years and be agitating for the overthrow, the complete overthrow of capitalism. Uh, I, I think you're going to uh, 
um, vote labor and and uh, maybe uh, after you have a couple of kids, you might even be tempted to think about the Tories. I don't know, but we'll see. We'll oh, find dare out. you, Mr. Yes, I'm sorry. That's those are fighting words. I realize. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's interesting because you know I'm I'm sure you know in the UK you just have people who are you know born and bred Labour parents or you know all generations photo Labour and just are never Tory and then Boris Johnson changed that you know knocked down what we call the Red War and uh, that yeah that, I'm sure we can have a conversation about that but I realise time is short and I'm so desperate to ask you about you know the whole Jordan Peterson thing and the the accusation that actually your what your work and what you're interested in you you're, you're, you're self admitted dirty leftist what you're interested in is pathologizing <laughs> I'm a center leftist I'm a center leftist like oh there's father, left in there there's left in there and that means evil <laughs> yes, right? so so yes, you, you pathologize conservatism that's what your work is about and um uh, you know I, 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 we've spoken about this you're on doing Twitter, a caricature but, now you're, of course of course you're Jordan, expressing a caricature yeah. Jordan Peterson right. um um, said, I think, in one of his personality lectures, he talks about uh, your work and uh, references um, your your mentor um, and says you've, you've got to be careful, you know, because they're the known Marxist. Uh, was it Ma 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 how do you pronounce her name? Mazarin Benaji. Um, Mazarin so Benaji. Yeah, yeah, he's just so wrong you, about that. I'm going to tell you, he's just utterly, utterly wrong about that. So I'll uh, let you reply to that. But just before before you do, I just want to set up how obviously this is well, you're probably quite intuitive to people, to, to many people who might be centre right or um, you know diehard conservatives, because they they might not necessarily be able to distinguish between the descriptive act of just saying, well, no, this is how human beings function psychologically, and um, and you say, and they might say. John, are you really saying that nothing falls out of this? Like, if, if you're saying that people are wired to just accept things and believe things, um, and that that has, um, um, what would you say, it's got no connection to the actual validity of the, of the proposal, how is that not a bad thing? And you're saying that conservatives do it more, well, you're pathologizing conservatism. I'll let you reply. Okay, lots, lots to unpack there too. Um, first, you're right, but in the early days, um, I mean, I've been misunderstood from the left, I've been misunderstood from the right, I've probably been misunderstood from the center, but um, the, the early days with system justification theory, I was misunderstood from the, from the left uh, by people who thought that by, as you said very well there, making descriptive statement about how difficult it is for people psychologically to really, you know, to use that silly cliche, think outside the box, you know, if people, people tend to find what's familiar, comforting, and find it difficult to really consider serious alternatives to what um, has been their status quo. I think this is a psychological, uh, psychologically descriptive fact that we are better off understanding and acknowledging, um, which is not at all a prescriptive justification for staying there. And if, if anything, to me, it means that, that this is exactly what we have to do. We have to look at ourselves and think about which things were justifying for the right reasons and when we have good reasons to justify them versus things that were justifying out of some psychologically reflexive state. Um, that, uh, and by reflexive, I mean non-reflective. Um, you know, some kind of um, tendency to, uh, to rationalize the things that are familiar, the way things have been to us, and to derogate alternatives, non-chosen alternatives to the status quo. I think, um, uh, so, so in, that, in that initial critique that, that because I 
was studying things like system justification and outgroup favoritism, that I thought those were good things. That didn't make any sense at all. Um, but I got that critique, sure, uh, in that case from the left, uh, from some leftists. Um, but um, but that's exactly right. To me, it's 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 uh, it's, 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 we need to understand, those of us who are interested in social change need to understand the obstacles to social change. And those, those, those are political obstacles, those are economic obstacles, and yes, those are psychological obstacles. Uh, we have to overcome all of them if we really want change. Um, so that's, that's what I think about that. Um, but the other part of that is it implies that I'm not pathologizing conservatism. If anything, I'm humanizing it. I'm psychologizing about why it's a natural thing. Um, but but and it, in the, in this way, I feel like I come very close to the philosopher um, um, named uh, Gerald Cohen, who said that that. Uh, as a psychological state, and maybe you can resonate with this as a psychological conservative, um, you find it very easy to complain about the way things are changing and things are not as good as they used to be in various ways and everything's going to you know, hell in a handbasket. We all have this experience, like a lot of things, some, sometimes you know, technological things or whatever things, it's like, oh, this is worse than it was before. You know? We all have in some sense that, um, that um, you know, uh, loss aversion, as prospect theory would say it, or um, endowment effects, you know, the things that the way things used to be seemed more right and more natural to us. And, and these changes are, are negative. Um, so that's not pathologizing anything. That's recognizing something about human beings. But what Gerald Cohen said, and what I agree with, is we, we need to recognize that as an understandable psychological impulse, but realize that it can go astray very easily when it's applied to matters of social justice. And that's when you say, okay, no, no, the inequalities of the past uh, are fine. We don't need to do anything about them. Um, maybe white men did deserve more than everybody else. And that's, and, and then you, you start digging your heels on, in on, um, on defending and justifying uh, uh, inequalities that are fundamentally un unjust, uh, as is racism and sexism and, and heterosexism and, and classism and a lot of things, right? Um, and so that's what I think. It, I think it's a natural psychological impulse that gets applied to things in potentially destructive ways, uh, sometimes in relatively subtle ways, like like microaggressions or whatever, and sometimes in really extreme ways, like like uh, the neo-Nazis, you know, chanting, you know, you won't replace us or whatever, um, right? So, um, so those are the temptations that can be, that people can get swept up in and taken very far uh, to the right. Um, and so there's, at some point, I think, <clears throat> I, I wouldn't say necessarily that it's a, an individual form of pathology, probably in many or most cases it's not, but it's a social pathology in the sense that people get caught up in extreme social movements that are very, very detrimental to society. Um, and, and you might even think that that's, that's in itself almost inevitable. I think it was Bertrand Russell said, um, all social movements go too far. Um, I think honestly um, that the conservative social movement in the United States has gone too far. I think they had some points in the 1980s about taxation rates, for instance, being way too high. Um, uh, and, and suspicions about uh, the, the evil empire in the Soviet Union, which is now not, probably not any less evil now that it's not, no longer socialist or communist in any way. Um, uh, I, I think that they were right about certain things 
um, the conservatives and, and Thatcher too, probably, um, uh, about uh, opportunities for people owning their own homes and so on. Um, but the, the, the conservative social movement has now clearly gone too far to the point where it is, I think, um, uh, endangering real, real progress on important issues, um, including maybe most of all climate change. But you, you wanted me to say something about Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson, um, uh, to me, Jordan Peterson is the Ezra Pound of psychology. Uh, he was a once brilliant person uh, who has, uh, in his older age, um, I think left the sphere of reality uh, and has turned to a very hard right, um, fascist sympathizing kind of position as Ezra Pound did with regard to Mussolini in his later years. Um, uh, I think there's, there are mental health issues there, um, to be honest with you. Uh, uh, I, I, in, in some sense, I feel for him for that. Uh, but I think that some of the things he said and done are, are, are truly dangerous and, and bad for, for, um, um, social science, bad for our society. Um, and for some reason he has a real hang up about Mazarin Banaji. Um, she grew up in India. And she, she was quoted somewhere as saying that she was taught Marxism in school um, in India. Um, and and, um, and there, there are communist parties in India, but she, I know I've known her very well for almost 30 years and she rejected that a very long time ago. She is in no way a communist, in no way a Marxist, uh, says that freely. She's a liberal, um, concerned about racism, sexism and so on. Um, but I think she believes in free markets and is not, is not in any way a, a, a socialist, a Marxist, communist, any of that stuff. He really just decided uh, 20 years ago he didn't like her. Um, my understanding is she gave a talk at Harvard that he didn't agree with, and he has portrayed her as a communist ever since. And it's, it's unfair, it's wrong, and I don't know, maybe it's sexist, and maybe there's an element of racial bias there too. I don't know. But his attacks on her are completely unfounded and unfair. I think we should um, advance the more nuanced critique, not necessarily of sure. your work, but the, um, well, yeah, maybe your work. I mean, like the idea of the, the, this asymmetry. I mean, I, I've spoken to a, f a few psychologists who, um, have pointed me towards a few meta-analyses and uh, some work, um, I think it was a Dutch study on disgust and purity, and they just point out, again, this, this is going to be a brilliant segue into height, they point out that actually um, these things are a lot more domain-specific, right? So, for example, the disgust purity thing, and you can find many examples where uh, psychologically liberal, liberally-minded people will be just as disgust prone or you know, in, in heights language uh, uh, invoke the language of purity when it comes to the environment for example um, do you want to comment on this um, more nuanced response to your work and actually the, the idea that the, it's the domain specific specificity that uh, is important to look at it's not weak it's too easy to just say conservatives are more dogmatic or more cognitively rigid for example Sure. I mean, we have to take it on case by case basis because the disgust thing is not the same as the dogmatism thing, which is not the same as other uh, psychological variables. But and the disgust research was not actually mine either. Um, that was that was other groups of researchers who focused on the disgust connection. Um, 
But I think the fundamental problem there is, is and you know, I I'm, was very influenced by Wittgenstein, so it's a problem of language. We can use the language of disgust to describe, oh, I feel disgusted at your behavior, or I feel disgusted at the, the greed of corporations, or I feel disgusted at the pollution, uh, which is you know, not the same thing as like, I'm about to throw up because of something, right? Because I saw uh, two men kissing or something like that, for instance, right? These are not the same things. Now, so, so when you measure these things with, with words uh, and, and with verbal statements, you're confounding uh, the way in which we use language as an analogy to something that originally in the work of Paul Rosen and other people was meant to be something very specific about an evolutionarily adapted uh, disease avoidance mechanism, right? Um, and so, sure, you can get liberals to use the word disgust, but what does that really mean? Um, so, and, and, and another example, um, and so in some sense, the domain specificity thing is, is a little bit silly because it's turned into a bunch of people doing little studies to show that some general tendency can be reversed if you just tweak everything just right. And I don't think that's the point of what we're supposed to be doing in social science. I think that's an attempt to try to get a publication and that's not an attempt to discover something really general and important. And here's another example. They're, they're, um, Natalie Shook and Russ Fazio um, had this domain general finding that liberals were more likely to explore more cells. It was like a game and it was, they called it bean fest. And it was about essentially finding food that was good for you, which gave you points as a video game. Uh, you know, you find good food, it gives you points. If you find poisonous things, you, um, you lose points. And, um, you know, it's mimics in some sense our evolutionary challenges um, millennia ago. You know, do we try a new food or do we stick with the same old food? And um, there's advantages if you, if you, uh, find a new food that's nutrient rich and there's disadvantages if it turns out to be poisonous uh, and so on. So you can stick with what's familiar and safe where you can explore more things. And they found that, um, uh, that liberals generally were more followed more open exploratory strategies. They took a little bit more risk, not a lot, a little bit more risk. They, and therefore they did better in this particular game, the way it was set up because they explored more and they found the more uh, valuable point totals in the, in the matrix that they were playing in this, in this video game compared to conservatives who just kind of sort of stuck with what worked in the past. Um, and so this was a very uh, intended to be a very domain general kind of paradigm. Now, someone came along and they changed the paradigm and they called it the Wall Street game and turned it into a stock market thing. And they found that when you call it a stock market thing that conservatives were more enthusiastic about playing the market and suddenly they took more chances and liberals were more cautious with their money uh, and, and blah, blah, blah. And then, so that was framed as a, a kind of refutation of the first paper. And it, we could debate whether it's interesting or not that, that conservatives in the United States in the 21st century are, enjoy playing the Wall Street game more than liberals. Maybe that's interesting, maybe it's not interesting, I don't know. Um, but it certainly doesn't refute the domain general claims that were made by, by Natalie Shook and Ross Fazio. Um, so a lot of times this domain specificity thing is just an attempt to poke holes in something that is attempt, attempting at least to make to draw more general conclusions. Now, maybe it's impossible to draw any general conclusions, but I don't believe that. I don't think that's where we're at as a field. And I don't think 
finding a bunch of exceptions is actually a, an especially helpful way to go unless you have a theory that ties all those exceptions together and they don't. So they're mostly just playing the role of, of critics and poking holes in other people's stories without having their own story at all. And that I think is, is maybe as good for a publication here or there, but it's, it's not good for social science in the long run. We, we should be moving towards more general um, understandings and conclusions, I think. Um, so those are two examples. The dogmatism thing is a different thing altogether. The dogmatism, you know, at least scales, measuring dogmatism. And again, this is, this, the dogmatism scales are again using words. It's about, you know, whether you're sure of your own beliefs and they don't say what those beliefs are. You know, you feel that you're right. You feel that, you know, you, you don't want to change your uh, mind easily and all these kinds of things. That is a very consistent finding and a very large effect size. Uh, conservatives definitely score higher on, on self-report measures of dogmatism than liberals do. That's been found by virtually everybody. That's in the meta-analyses that comes out as one of the biggest effect sizes of all, which is also not to say that you can never find a domain on which liberals express more certainty than conservatives. But, but the work that's been done on that is, is very dodgy um, and, and very, very superficial because among other things, they don't account for how much knowledge people actually have. Uh, about something or how much education. Um, you know, frankly, I want my, um, my epidemiologists and public health specialists to be pretty sure about uh, that wearing masks is, is a good thing during rates of high disease, infectious disease outbreak and vaccinations are effective against them and so on. I don't want them to be swayed by, um, you know, a bad argument or any argument uh, or, you know, or one study as opposed to a thousand studies or whatever it is. So they're confounding, um, you know, being sure about something or having confidence in your beliefs with, uh, with something else. Um, there can be the problem that they, that they keep avoiding, these, these critics and people trying to poke holes is, is you, can, you can be pretty certain about something for good reasons in a, in a Bayesian rational way, you have a lot of experience with something, you have strong priors because, because there's a lot of research on something that you happen to know about, for instance. Uh, or you can be just as sure for without any education or basis of understanding. And, and they don't distinguish between those things at all. So that's, they're not even, to my mind, getting serious about the question. Yeah, thank you for that. That's that's uh, really enlightening. And I know uh, I listened to your, your podcast on, uh, was it... Uh, was it four beers, two psychologists? Yes, yes. They were only uh, counting their beers, though. Those, yeah. those guys uh, only count their own beers, four beers. I know too. that, um, I think you spoke there about um, the, about theory and uh, your your understanding of theory and the role it should play. So perhaps people can listen to that if they want to, um, yeah, get get a, more of a, an understanding of uh, why you think these... Um, yeah, these general stories are, are very important in, in psychology. But what I was going to ask you about next is whether you've tested um, individual differences in terms of um, being able to change your behaviour, recognise it, recognise that you're justifying the system. Uh, what makes you resilient? Um, I know, uh, well, I imagine that you've seen the work on, for example, moral reframing. Um, and uh, that, that I imagine that's uh, you know, somewhat tangential, but certainly relevant to... Um, combating system justification and finding it finding this kind of like metacognition finding out why we believe what we believe um have you looked at the role of 
personality of something like IQ. Like IQ is fascinating, right? Because a lot of those findings suggest that the smarter someone is, it, all that matter, all that changes is they just become more articulate, uh, justifying their beliefs. It doesn't seem to have, from what I've seen anyway, perhaps you can correct me, but it doesn't seem to have much of an effect just being smart at uh, discovering the truth. Although perhaps generally you might say that the smarter you are, the 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 the, uh, the more deeply you think about things and obviously if you've got an IQ of 75 you're not doing much thinking about anything so perhaps there's a you know this is this is obviously a, a complex story but do you have you have you done any research into how we can become more resistant and whether there are individual differences in people's uh, resistance and resilience to uh, just automatic thinking good those there's at least two maybe three questions in there that I would disentangle um, one is about the role of intelligence, and I have not done research on that, but other people have, and I've read, read the studies. Um, there's a lot of studies now that suggest that um, cognitive abilities of various kinds are positively associated with liberalism and negatively associated with conservatism. Uh, as I say, I haven't done that research. They also find that cognitive abilities are, are negatively associated with, with outward prejudice. Um, so um, in general, the smarter people are, you know, setting aside whether it's innate, you know, inherited intelligence versus acquired through education and so on. People who are more cognitively flexible, uh, score higher on measures of fluid intelligence, verbal abilities, all kinds of things tend to be more liberal and less prejudiced. Um, and that, that research has been carried out in, in many Western countries. Um, so that's a, that's a consistent finding that goes against the idea that, um, that intelligence pulls for extremity, let's say, uh, in, in both directions. Um, the other issue is about framing, I think, and whether you can get people to, um, to so, uh, yeah, there's three, three issues. One is about what's the role of intelligence. Second is what's the role of framing. Uh, and, what's, and the third is, um, can you get people to engage in more system two thinking and less system one, less reliance on system one thinking? And to take the last one, yes, you can. There, are, there, there is some research. It hasn't been well, it hasn't been applied very much as far as I know to political psychology, but um, there are manipulations that people have been developing to get people to process information, for instance, more mindfully with information, even information, scientific information about climate change or whatever it is, uh, in a more deep, uh, systematic, elaborative way. Um, and I think that it, at least in some contexts, you, you can get people to, to respond in a more rational manner, at least in the short term, you know, these are, these are short term manipulations, they're not long term manipulations. And, but for a long time, we've known from dual process theories in social psychology that when people care a lot about something, um, when they're, they're personally involved, when, when it's self relevant in some ways, they're a lot more willing to expend cognitive resources processing things deeply. They're a lot better at distinguishing between good arguments and bad arguments, weighing the evidence and making better judgments at the end of the day. So um, I think that's another problem with, with, the, with, for instance, Haidt's moral intuitionist, social intuitionist thing, which is that it's, it's as if his model is a dual process model without the, without the system two. It's just, it's as if system one is the only thing, only game in town. And that's, and that system two is only the slave or something of system one, but that's really not what 
a lot of research on dual process theories has shown for decades. Um, you know, if you want the popular version, read Danny Kahneman's, you know, thinking fast and slow. Um, so his is like a, like a, yeah, it, it just doesn't make sense. Um, and Rob Willer and Matt Feinberg have shown that if you can get people to do more of the system two kind of thinking, um, that they are less, um, less a slave to their passions or whatever, as, as, uh, David Hume said, and Haidt likes to quote. Um, so there's no reason to think that uh, the only thing that, that system two uh, deliberative processing does is to justify the, the system one thing. I think that's grossly overstated. Dan Kahan has made a similar argument, but it doesn't hold up in my view. And, and he's not on strong uh, ground there when he talks about climate change, especially because essentially what he, what he shows is that more, um, more um, informed, educated, I don't know, knowledgeable um, conservatives um, be, um, uh, are more skeptical about climate change than, than conservatives who are less informed, less educated, less sophisticated, and so on. Uh, whereas liberals who are more informed, educated, and sophisticated are more concerned about climate change compared to liberals who are not. And so he interprets that as a symmetrical pattern that, that what is happening here is that sophistication is just increasing biases. But what he, to make that claim, he's got to ignore the possibility that there's truth. Um, that statement only makes sense if you just simply set aside the possibility that there is any truth of the matter when it comes to climate change. I'm a scientist, I'm a social scientist. I see no reason to set aside the possibility that, um, that there, is a, a, there are questions of truth when it comes to climate change. So really what he's showing, if you accept my view that maybe truth exists, uh, is that uh, people who subscribe to a conservative ideology, the more they get into that, the more adept they are at using conservative ideology, get more sophisticated about, uh, about finding ways of minimizing the problem and rationalizing it and so on. But actually, if you have a different ideology, in this case, a liberal ideology, um, all that information, education, sophistication, perhaps brings you closer to truth. So I don't think we need to just, you know, give up on, on truth or reasoning or accuracy and social political judgment just yet. So do you think something like mindfulness, mindfulness meditation, where you're actually trying to catch your thought cycles could help you to overcome system justification? I think yes. Uh, I had a postdoc who, who, or a graduate student, I guess a visiting graduate student from Oxford uh, University who thought that that was the case. And he has been doing work. Um, and I believe that, that, that he and his collaborators, I, I don't do mindfulness or meditation research, but he and his collaborators, I believe have found evidence that's consistent with that idea. Um, so, yeah, it's consistent with our theory. It's not something I know a lot about, but um, but yes, I think there are people who believe that that's the case, and some people maybe who are even finding evidence consistent with that. So let's um, finish by talking about uh, height. Um, I thought that your extended review of the Righteous Mind, which I read many years ago, um, was I said this to you on, on Twitter was absolutely fantastic, and uh, yeah, I, I said I, it felt like I, I, I gained ten IQ points because there was such uh, insight. Because I found Height's book, apt, I mean, it's one of the best books I've ever read in terms of you know, it's, like, it's just a software update, right? And then I read. He's I, a I good thought, writer. He's a very good writer. Yeah, I, and I, that's I what you said. He's a very good writer, yeah. but he's a dangerously good writer because he yes. can make yes. people things that are not so. 
I read it and I thought, everything is correct, he's right about everything. And then I was so annoyed because I read your review. I was like, Arthur, <sighs> he's not, he's not, yeah. So it was, it was, it was, you, you've, you very rarely get those pendulum moments where you're like, oh, Height's right about everything. There's nothing wrong in this book. And then I read yours and I was like, oh, maybe actually there's quite a lot to think about here. So um, do you, could you talk about... Um, uh, what height gets wrong, and something I also wanted to drop in there because you mentioned um, you mentioned like Feinberg and Willer and all this stuff and moral reframing. I think Josh Green at Harvard says that I think he says this in in his book that um, maybe liberals just have a more refined moral palette right when it comes to these these two liberal foundations, and hence they do pick up. Okay, sometimes they see racism where there isn't racism, but most of the time they're actually picking up on things which uh, will become just common sense wisdom in thirty years, right? Um, and you don't see them because you're a system justifier, but they do because they have they're, they're either they're they're more refined because they um, are I know more intelligent or because they have to be, right? If you're you know driving a car in America and you're black, um, then whether it's true or not, I don't know the statistics, but let, if if you think it's true that you're you better have your hands on the wheel, then you're going to potentially be someone that advocates for um, you know, uh, uh, police reform, right? So, um, and you might just have to have more, uh, uh, yeah, a more refined moral palette. Yeah, uh, a lot there. I, I liked I liked that your synthesis of, of my work and Josh Green's work. I think that was good. Jo Josh Green and I do agree, I think, on, on that. And, and I, I would say um, it might be because of, of Green's philosophical background. You know, he, he had a PhD in philosophy before he started in as a neuroscient, cognitive neuroscientist. And um, one thing I've always said, I said it to Haidt, he didn't, he didn't take it seriously, but, um, you know, Philosophers in the Western tradition have been arguing about the about these moral values for at least 24 centuries, and not one of them uh, would ever uh, put something like obedience to authority or in-group loyalty or enforcement of purity sanctions on the same moral plane as achieving fairness or or minimizing harm. Whenever those values come into conflict, every moral philosopher it, over the last 24 centuries would tell you, um, okay, if your superior officer tells you uh, in the military to shoot a, um, uh, an innocent child, um, you know, obedience to authority says you shoot the innocent child, um, fairness and harm avoidance says absolutely do not shoot this innocent child, every moral philosopher in the universe would say harm, you know, avoidance of harm and fairness trumps Obedience to authority and in-group loyalty. I'm sorry. What 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 um, if um, Height would come back and say something like, "What what if your authority is to God, like the Christian God who says that is absolutely repugnant. You cannot do that. Murder is wrong. It's uh, you know against the Ten Commandments." Um, is am I am I talking past you there? Uh, yeah, I, I, a little bit talking past me, and a little bit um, that person would be the beneficiary maybe of what the philosophers would call moral luck. That if your God tells you not to shoot innocent children, then it's accidentally you, true. <laughs> you do the right, you do the right thing for the wrong reason. Uh, yeah. not, you shouldn't have done it because of obedience to God. You should have done it because it was absolutely an abysmally immoral thing to do. Um, but but sometimes you know even God gets it right. <laughs> right? <laughs> Yeah. But so that's part of it. So yes, I, there's so much wrong with moral foundations theory. And I, I tried to, to tell these guys what I thought about it when I first heard it a long time ago. Um, one problem I think is, is their definitions of moral foundations is, is very loose 
and impressionistic and why stop at these five or sometimes they say six. Uh, they, they, they kind of talk as if they're doing like a factor analysis of evolutionary biology and this is the, all the things that humans care about, but it's not. Uh, I, I think you wouldn't arrive at uh, these particular five or six things if you, if you knew everything there was to know about evolutionary biology and, and people like Patricia Churchland who knows more about evolutionary biology than I do said the same thing. Um, that, that, you know, I don't know, it just doesn't stand out. It's, it's arbitrary, these things, they pulled them out of a hat. I, I think the, the most cynical view is they, they, they tried to come up with more things that conservatives valued than liberals so they could say conservatives win in morality, which I think is really silly um, um, uh, in many different ways. Um, the other thing is it doesn't, it's not a theory because it doesn't explain anything really. And I mean, if, if their explanation is evolution, big hand waving, that's a pretty, pretty loose explanation. Otherwise, they're just left with something descriptive, which is conservatives seem to think these five things are all about equally valuable. And, and liberals think these two things are more valuable than the other thing, because that's actually what their data show. And that I think is more consistent with the view that you attributed to, to Josh Green. And it's also the view that I share that when I look at those data, I say, conservatives are pretty confused. They think that, that obeying authority is just as important as being fair. Whereas liberals realize that these things come into conflict much, much more and that when they do come into conflict, which is really the only time you've got a moral dilemma, when these, things, when these values are, are in conflict, um, liberals know that you should go with fairness over mindless obedience to authority for sure. Um, so it, it's, it's possible that their whole pattern of results is just liberals are thinking more, more deeply or more clearly uh, about it, or that they've had more education in philosophy or something else that tells them why fairness and harm avoidance are more important moral values than obedience to authority or, or deferent or, or loyalty to the in-group or something. Um, those are some of the problems, but they, there's so many other problems. I mean, Haidt's book, um, The Righteous Mind, it reminds me of the bell curve in the sense that the first half and the second half have really nothing to do with each other logically, but are tied together um, uh, for, for polemical reasons. Uh, in the bell curve, the first half was about IQ differences uh, among different racial groups. The second half was a policy, public policy polemics. And this is why there's no point in having uh, any kinds of um, uh, outreach well, programs yeah. aimed, at, yeah, aimed at improving the educational abilities of, of blacks and Latinos and so on. The, the second part does not follow from the first, I'm sorry. You the fact that there may be uh... in the aggregate small differences in IQ does not mean uh, education won't help anything. I'm sorry, it doesn't follow. And Heights, well, the first half says, um, says um, um, there is no system two processing except as a slave of system one processing, that we're all just like the, the little guy on the elephant, um, top of the elephant being taken around by the elephant. Uh, he also says that your moral intuitions are just like a press secretary or basically a bullshitter. Um, yeah. And so, uh, and yeah, yeah. And everything else that people are doing is just justifying their intuitions, which are nothing but emotional associations and so on. And then the second half of the book, of the book is like, okay, therefore, therefore, out of nowhere, liberals should take more seriously conservatives' lawyers, conservative bullshitters, conservative intuitions. Well, why? It doesn't follow in the slightest that, that if it's all just tastes and intuitions and emotions 
why should this group follow that group stuff anymore? I mean, yeah. it's like saying, uh, you know, Americans should should eat more poutine because the Canadians like it. I mean, it's it's not. I don't know. It's not an argument. Mm-hmm. What do you think? So I interviewed Kurt Gray, who I think is absolutely fantastic and incredibly underrated. I, th- I know he's writing his own uh, popular academic book at the moment, and I really hope it does well because I thought that he demolished. Um, who, who are we talking Kurt, about now? Kurt Gray. Kurt Gray. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, th- I thought that he uh, demolished um, moral foundations theory as a cognitive theory. Um, so I don't know what you think about the dyadic morality and the idea that actually everything kind of re- does reduce at the cognitive level to harm. And there's been, it's unfalsifiable, it's either unfalsifiable um, or, well, I don't know what else you would say at the cognitive level, it's either unfalsifiable or no one's found any of these, um, what would you say? Um, correlates, neural correlates of the foundations. I mean, maybe you can make a argument about disgust there but i don't know i don't know enough about the neuroscience so um yeah do do you do you enjoy uh kirk gray's work and do you agree with um the theory of dyadic morality um i certainly agree with it more than moral foundations theory i i um i feel like i've learned more from kirk gray's distinctions between um moral agents and moral patients and uh, I, I find a lot of what he writes about um, how people theorize about God to be really interesting. And um, I, I think he's on, on a conceptual level, he might be right that what everyone really cares about is avoidance of harm and that, that what um, fairness is, is a form, uh, what unfairness is, is a form of harm. Uh, I think that's a reasonable way to talk. I don't know whether it's, it's ultimately helpful. I, I don't, I, I've learned a lot from 24 centuries of, of Western philosophers talking about morality and ethics in a more nuanced form than just the avoidance of harm. So I wouldn't want to throw out all, all of that. Um, so there's one sense in which maybe on a certain psychological level, especially an unexamined psychological level, it could be that that avoidance of harm is, is doing the most work. Uh, Kurt, Kurt could be right about that uh, without, I think, assuming that that's all that matters in a normative sense philosophically uh, I wouldn't want to do that um, I haven't read Kurt's new book about this but I certainly agree uh, I don't even know if it's out uh, yeah it's not out yet yeah, I think he's writing it I, I certainly agree with all, all the shortcomings of moral foundations theory as you just described them there's no good evidence for them I think the best you could say about moral foundations theory is it's a theory not about morality or moral behavior or even moral intuitions, so much as a theory about the social representations of morality, what liberals think morality is versus what conservatives think morality is. Um, But if you stay at that descriptive level, you simply cannot make the normative prescriptive claims that Haidt has been making for so long, which is that liberals have to take seriously in the sense of embracing uh, the conservative representations of, of morality, because those might be completely false, right? Um, so if you, if, you, if, you, if you stay at that descriptive level, you've got no grounds whatsoever for, for chastising liberals for not taking them more seriously, you just don't. And so, um, so I think they've you know, committed the naturalistic fallacy and gone back many times they're dancing around the normative descriptive thing. If they just stayed at the descriptive thing, they would be um, less open to criticism, but 
they're, they're not doing very much that's of interest. They're just simply pointing out liberals think this and conservatives think that. They're not actually explaining that, uh, especially if you want to ground it in, in evolutionary um, universal principles. You're not going to get to a, a place where liberals and conservatives think differently from an assumption about the universals of human nature. So it's just, it, it's not a good theory in, in any way, I think, unfortunately. Um, and it hasn't, in, to my mind, improved in, in 15 years either. So there's that. Um, last main question. I realize I've uh, taken all of your time here. So last main question before, just a very few quickfire ones. Um, how do you think you're, I, I'm, I'm writing a book at the moment on um, gifted education. So I'm very interested to get your take on this. How do you think your work has shaped your vision of what you think school and more generally education should be like. You mentioned that your daughter was in a gifted track, I think, or a gifted school. So given that you've uh, you spent most of your life on examining the, the often dangerous automatic thinking that we do, what would you like to see schools do? And perhaps I, I'll, I'll inject a, a layer of nuance into that, bearing in, bearing in mind that you know, schools are different and you know, people, obviously, as we said, rate, have, there's a vast range in cognitive ability. Um, you know, expecting a teacher to differentiate when you've got a gifted kid, IQ 140, and someone that you know, is, uh, is uh, you know, licking their elbows in the corner, it's going to be hard to do, you know, teach Socratic discourse um, like that. So uh, perhaps you could... May, yeah, maybe inject that level of uh, nuance into your answer about what certain schools could do um, and what we could do generally. Yeah, it's a great question. I, I probably should think more formally about about what a system justification view of the school system would be like. Um, I probably haven't thought about that as much as I um, as I should. Since you brought up my my kids, um, I'll just say. We live in New York City, um, and both my kids go to public schools, and they we're fortunate because the public schools are excellent in 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 the neighborhood that we live in, and in and in the neighborhood where my other child goes to school. So one of my kids does go to a school that's a public school for all gifted and talented kids, people who are identified that way, either in kindergarten, which is probably too early to be honest to, to really do that effectively, uh, or in seventh grade. And it's an excellent school. I love it. Um, it's also a very diverse school in many different ways. So I, I support that school, even though um, the fact that it's a school for gifted and talented could be, I, I suppose, perceived as elitist in some ways. But um, it's elite really only in the in the academic sense. It's 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 free, and it's uh, it does have a very diverse um, student body. So I think it's a school very much worth protecting and defending and so on. Um, and my other child goes to a, a school in, in New York City in public school that's an excellent public school and we'll have to figure out what, what she does later in her, her academic career. But um, but I, I think like all these things, it, what we're talking about is balancing individual and social interests, right? And I think um, ultimately when, when parents decide about their kids schooling and so on, we have to we have to try to keep both levels of analysis in mind, even though it's hard, um, because um, you can't sort of make up for social problems by by throwing your kid under under a bus, for instance, by sending them to a public school that's not well funded, that's not supported, that's not good. You can't do that to your kid, um, but you also can't, I think, just turn your back on the on the rest of the community either. And so. Um, you know, so I, one of the things I like and that I'm, I'm fortunate to live 
where I live in that sense is to have excellent public schools um, in, in New York City, in Manhattan, because, in part because taxes are high um, and in part because incomes are high. Um, and so that's an advantage that we have. You know, other communities might have to, to get, the, get the formula right uh, in a different way. Um, but, uh, but I certainly think that, um, that I feel that they're getting an excellent education and that that's extremely important to me. And I think that for our future as a society, we need, we need a highly educated uh, population. And, uh, and I would like to see more done to, to correct inequalities in our educational system, which are of course legion. Um, but that is, among other things, a political struggle right now for us. Um, and, it's, and it's playing out in different ways in different regions of the country. Uh, but I think political polarization between the left and right is certainly a big part of, of what people, of what's happening there uh, in the struggle over, over schools and what they're to be taught in schools and who's to be the decision making. And, and sometimes it plays out in terms of whether you're wearing masks or not. And sometimes it plays out in terms of the curriculum and which books are taught and which ideas are taught and which are not. Um, you know, I, this is why I think it's impossible to believe that left and right are, are obsolete, you know, concepts, at least philosophical concepts for us now, um, because they do help to explain even the struggles of, over, over what, over our, our schools for children. Um, you know what the long-term solution is i don't know we could we could debate that or talk about that for another hour and a half someday but um but i do think um from a system justification perspective that uh that it's inevitable that schools are going to in some ways um perpetuate some of the inequalities that are already present in our societies but i also think there are a lot of people um in our school systems who are trying to do better than that and to to um, to reduce some of those inequalities, hopefully by raising up um, levels of education, not by bringing them down. Uh, and I, I think that many people are very valiantly attempting that struggle and with some success. I, I think at least in our country, I, I do think education uh, levels keep going up. So I, you know, I, I think that's a good thing. Um, uh, and it, it is part of, part of the struggle for equality, which is a centuries long struggle. Okay, two quick fire questions. What is your favorite non-fiction book and your favorite fiction book? Um, good questions. I um, I didn't prepare for this, so I <laughs> I, uh, I I will have to give you something spontaneous. I have several. You can go I, top I, three. I love, okay, I, I love. Uh, let's let's do the fiction first, maybe. Um, I love reading poetry too, by the way, but fiction, uh, James Joyce, I have to go with uh, uh, probably the Dubliners I love. Um, I love Chekhov's short stories. Um, uh, who else I'm looking at my bookshelf here? Um, I don't know, I, I grew up loving J.D. Salinger. Um, George Eliot is one of my favorites. I, there's there's a lot of, um, of I think, great, uh, Kafka's short stories have blown me away. Um, yeah, I mean, I, for, for some reason, the early 20th century, there's a lot, a lot of incredible writing, I think, both poetry and, and, and fiction, short stories and novels that really um, stays with me as really being meaningful in my life. But, um, uh, and then 
nonfiction, favorite nonfiction books. Um, I know I, I would have to go with probably philosophers over social psychologists, I'm afraid. Um, I, 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 when I read a social psychology book that's meant for the broader audience, I, <laughs> I can't help cringing at the overgeneralizations and inaccuracies yeah. and, you know, uh, and so on. So maybe philosophers feel the same way about, about when they read um, <laughs> popular books in philosophy, but, but I, I feel that there's a literature in, among academic philosophers where they're writing uh, for a broad enough audience without, uh, without watering it down too much. So, um, so I, I, I love to read philosophy. Wittgenstein, Russell. Wittgenstein, for sure. Uh, yeah, as a philosopher, Wittgenstein more than Russell, the late Wittgenstein for me. Um, uh, and I, you know, I, I you know, I, I read contemporaries too, but about epistemology or philosophy of science or, um, or sometimes philosophy of psychology, but yeah. Um, yeah, sorry, I can't give you more. <laughs> That's good. Okay, John, you've been so gracious with your time. So thank you very much. I've followed your work for, for many, many years now. Um, so it's, uh, it's a bit surreal to be uh, chatting to you. Um, but yeah, thank you very much for uh, coming on. Hopefully we get to uh, speak again soon. And I promise if Jordan Peterson launches any more <laughs> Twitter tirades, I will, I will be there with my thank you. very thank small you. Twitter following coming to your defense. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs>